from Bayside Church International Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. We are finishing today the finale of a preaching series that we've been doing through the Gospel of John called Revealed. At the start of the year, we had a day together as an eldership team. A good part of that was praying and prophesying and praising together. And through that time, God laid on my heart the idea of doing a preaching series through the Gospel of John. There are a number of ways that can be done. One of the main ways that churches do it is that they choose the seven I am statements of Jesus and they focus on that. Jesus makes seven statements where he says, I am, I am the bread of life. Okay, I am the vine, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the gate, I'm the way, the truth and the life, I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, He makes a number of statements like that. There are seven or eight, just to be controversial, if you include where he simply said, I am. And then there's an eighth one. There are also, another way to approach the book of John is to look at the seven signs of Jesus, the seven miraculous signs that he performed through the gospel, or eight, if you consider that he himself raised himself from the dead then that makes the eighth one. But that's the angle that we chose in this series, Revealed. We are looking at how the Gospel of John reveals Jesus and we've chosen the format of looking at the seven miraculous signs before Jesus' death that he was responsible for performing. Each one of them shows us something about who Jesus is and why we are to place our faith and our trust in him. And one of the reasons we chose this format is because at the end of John, this is what John says about the whole purpose of his gospel. At the end of chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which I have not recorded in this book. But these signs have been recorded so that you may know Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in his name, you may receive life eternal life. I've written to you a book, I've highlighted seven signs and the reason I've done that is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's the basic way we've chosen to look at this book. These signs, as I say, reveal who Jesus is and one of the things they reveal about Jesus or a couple of the things is that as this verse says, he is the Christ and it also reveals that he is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Now, we learn this, or are introduced to this in the very first chapter of John, when Andrew and Philip both say, one of them, I can't remember which one, one of them says, we've found the one who is the Christ. And he gets his mates to come. And then, I think it's then Philip says, goes to a guy called Nathaniel and says, we've found the one who is the prophet Moses spoke about. In brackets, in Deuteronomy 18. And so the whole book sets it up from chapter 1, that this book is about establishing to the Jewish audience of the day primarily, although obviously we can benefit from it, but essentially the Jewish audience of the day, that the Christ and the prophet that the Old Testament had been talked about had come and his name was Yeshua. His name is Jesus. And so these signs all have significance in pointing and convincing God's people of that way. Our website at the moment looks like this, because this is how, what we've done in the series so far. The first time we looked at was Glory Revealed, where Jesus turned water into wine at Cana in Galilee. He did that for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons he de- turned water into wine was to prove that he was the prophet that was going to be just like Moses. Because that's what Moses said, a prophet just like me will come and you better listen to him. And so Jesus' first miracle parallels Moses' first plague. Moses turns water into blood. Jesus comes along, just like Moses, but even better, turns water into wine. He parallels the miracles of Moses. The second week, we looked at power revealed. We saw the story of the boy, the son of a Roman centurion, or the son of a Roman official that Jesus healed. Moses, one of his powerful signs and wonders was that he oversaw the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. He oversaw the death of the sons of the Egyptians. Jesus comes along and shows us a miracle where he oversees the raising from sickness for those who are oppressing God's people. Same, but superior. The third week, we looked at provision revealed, where Jesus 
fed the multitude, just like Moses fed the manna in the desert and they couldn't collect leftovers. So Jesus feeds them bread in the desert and he says, I'm happy if you collect it with 12 basketfuls because this stuff will last longer than just one day. Same miracle, but far superior. In Victory Revealed, we saw how Jesus walked on the storm. Moses couldn't do that. He had to part the water when he went through it. Good miracle. Jesus does the same. He leads through the water and he walks on top of the storm without even having to part it. And in the last one we looked at, or for Easter, we looked at the raising of Lazarus. Moses, one of the things Moses was responsible for was overseeing the death and filling the graves of 1.2 million people in the desert. Give or take. Moses oversaw the funerals of 1.2 million people. Jesus comes along, completely ruins Lazarus' funeral and said, anyone who believes in me, uh, spiritually speaking, I will ruin their funeral. I'll take them out of their graves and they'll come into new life. Truth revealed the healing at Bethesda. Jesus heals a man. He does it on the Sabbath and he commands him to lift his mat on the Sabbath day. Moses, of course, ended up killing people for working on the Sabbath day. They parallel one another in many ways, but Jesus constantly is shown as being vastly superior because in John chapter 1, right at the beginning of this gospel, it contrasts the two. While they are same-same, they are different. It says that law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it is a book of comparison and it is also a book of contrast. I knew it was another C. You knew that too. And those things convolute in a, no, forget it, in a cacophony of whatever. Today we're looking at vision revealed. We are looking at the story in John chapter 9 where Jesus brings sight to a man who was born blind. A man born with a birth defect. We're not doing these in the order of their sequence this was actually the one that as we prayed as a preaching team no one wanted to do and so I got lumped with it at the end but I've come to really enjoy it this week before we read John chapter 9 as always there are three rules to understanding the Bible properly context context and context the context of this story is that Jesus is speaking in Jerusalem and at the time of one of the big festivals, okay, it's the last festival of the year, it's called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. So there's a whole mass of people around. It's the whole thing from John 7, 8 and 9. That's the whole context. And there are many layers to this story. It takes up a whole chapter. Some of Jesus' miracles are like three sentences. Boom, then it's over. This takes up a whole chapter in John. And so there are multi-layers to it. There are many dimensions, there are many angles to it. We could preach off this, we could do seven weeks on this miracle and people would show different angles and lessons that you can possibly learn from this story. And so I've just chosen one that's really been highlighted to me this week in my study and I'm going to say what it is now because it's not quite like me to do this. I'm going to highlight the aspect of this story that comments on the political and cultural climate of Jesus' day and how Jesus and this blind man contradicted and countered the political culture and the, socio, uh, the social environment of that day in a very provocative way. They, in this story, are very politically incorrect. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus leaves... He gets up and he preaches about salvation and then he closes his message and it says this. It says, he pleaded with them and he said, please do what you can to save yourself from this corrupt generation. Now that generation specifically that he was talking to was the same generation that Jesus dealt with. The same generation of people, they were in the, it was like within a few months of each other. So he's talking to the same generation. It is the generation of people, those of you doing the <coughs> Chronological Bible Reading Plan on YouTube, will know this week that we're reading a prophetic song of Moses right back in Deuteronomy 32 and he prophesies way into Israel's future and he says the day is coming when this nation of old covenant people will see its end come about as an old covenant nation it will end and that generation will be wicked and corrupt so Moses prophesied that generation way back in Deuteronomy 32 and those of you doing the chronological plan will see that 
this week. So Peter gets up and he says, this is a corrupt generation. You need to make sure you're not a part of it anymore. But today, we also have a culture around us that in many ways is corrupt. And so what I'm wanting to do today, and, and, and like the early church, we have a calling to be countercultural to the corruption of the generation around us. Okay? That is what being apostolic means. Apostolic was not an Old Testament word that Jesus borrowed when he named his disciples apostles. It was a Greek word or it was a, in the Roman culture where Rome, the culture of Rome, would invade a place and they'd send a convoy of educators and songwriters and philosophers and artists and politicians that sent a ship, a convoy of people to that conquered land who would make the culture of that land just like Rome. In other words, they would import the culture, the superior culture of Rome, into this environment. And that word in the Greek is apostolos. That was an apostolic envoy. So Jesus says, listen, you guys have the culture of heaven. There is a way that heaven works. It is characterized, among other things, by love, by truth, and by life. Liberty, freedom, joy, thanksgiving okay there is a culture of heaven and your job is to be ambassadors because that's where your passport's from you are citizens of heaven you are to take that culture and permeate the culture that you find yourself surrounded in we are to change the culture around us that's what salt does that's what light does you're the salt of the world you're the light of the world we are to shine in a culture that is dark we are to bring taste and flavor to a culture that is bland and gray and boring and we are to bring color to it that is our call we are culture carriers Okay, And so part of the way that we are empowered or better equipped to counter the culture we live in is have some type of understanding of how the corrupt culture we live in works. We need to know Jesus within us, but it's also good to have an understanding of the culture we live in and how it works. And we see this played out in Jesus, or at least Chad does. Maybe you will at the end of today. <laughs> I see this played out in this story of the man who was born blind. Amen. Well, you can't say amen yet. No, know where I'm going. Okay. I'll ask you later. Amen. amen. Um, <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. Okay, oh, I better just get into it, all right? Put your hand somewhere. <laughs> Lord, help Chad today. <laughs> amen. Okay. <laughs> no, Lord, we, we do. We want you to teach us, and so... Give us ears to hear, and in light of this story, give us eyes to see. Okay, give us eyes to see, because we really, we really do want to see truth that um, empower, that frees us and brings empowering everywhere we go. Truth that can empower us to help others. Okay, all right, amen. Let's go. I'm going to do this the very Chad way. I'll read a verse, make some comments, and uh, then I'll read a bit faster over bits that you know um, I could do another day. Okay, let's go. Verse one, John nine. My time starts now. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We're going to stop there. In no less than five times in this story, John is very specific to say that this wasn't just a blind man. This was a man who was blind from birth. It was a man who was born blind up to this point in the chronology of the gospels if you take matthew mark luke and john and you sort of set out the miracles in chronological fashion at home i've got a chronological bible where the niv people did that and it, you know goes from that story to that story to that story in the chronology of jesus's miracles he'd already healed blind people before okay but he'd never healed a man yet who was born blind and that's a significant part of this story that we do not understand unless you understand some context behind the scenes so here you go here's a history lesson under king solomon the kingdom of israel is doing wonderfully they're rich they're wealthy god is with them the glory is in the house a whole bunch of dodgy kings come and the prophets come to israel and said that's it your time's over we're going to scatter you and end you the northern kingdom goes first and then jerusalem is destroyed in 586 bc in about 500 BC, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come about, where God's people rebuild the temple, although it's not nearly as good. Temple 2.0 is not nearly as good as Temple 1 that, uh, that Solomon built, right? So they rebuild the temple in about 500 BC. 
But one of the significant things that happens in that story, or let me say it this way, one of the significant things that does not happen in that story is that God does not come and dwell in the house. When Moses built the tabernacle, as soon as he was finished, end of Exodus, the fire of God came. Phew, glory of God. Hua, cloud. Bam. God is there. Wah. In the Hebrew. When David and Solomon built the house, he does it exactly according to David. He now builds the temple. They had a tabernacle. Now they have a temple. When Solomon builds the house, according to how God wanted it done, the glory comes, the priests all collapse out on the floor. They can't even walk in. The cloud is there. The fire is there. Wah. God is in the house. When this temple is built in 500 BC, they build it, they make it, they, it's, it's going well, Ezra is, is writing about all this, etc., etc., and on the day they finish it, nothing happens. Now they have a ceremony and they read scripture and they end up weeping and wailing because it's not as good as the old temple, but God does not come on that temple. And so for 500 years, since that era, there was no kabod, glory of God in the temple, and there's also no king on the throne. So for 500 years BC, in all this time leading up to the days of Jesus, a lot of stuff went on. And as we know, reading Old Testament history, and particularly for those of us who are about to get into the book of Judges soon, when God's people do not have the weighty presence amongst them, and when God's people do not have a strong national leader, they have a tendency to just soak up the corruption of the culture around them, worshipping false gods, doing as everybody else around them does. That's exactly what happens in this period of time. So here, after the second temple is built, we've got Ezra and Nehemiah tell the history. We've got Zechariah and Malachi who prophesy in that time. And then we've got 440 years before the gospel starts. We call it the gap between the Testaments, but please don't think nothing happened. Heaps happened in that 440 years. And one of the things that happened at about 330, AD was a guy called Alex the Great took over the empire of the, the Persians who were alive at that time and they basically, the Greeks, started running that part of the world. So of course Israel, with no God in the temple and no king on the throne, started to become very Greek in their way of thinking and it is in this era of time that things pop up that you don't see in the Old Testament. That's why when you come to the Gospels, 440 years after Malachi, you start reading about rabbis. Well, they're not in the Old Testament. You start reading about synagogues. Well, they're not in the Old Testament. You start reading about people like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees. Well, where the heck do they come from? They're not in the Old Testament. No, no, no. They all emerged in this period of 440 years as God's people embraced the corruption of Greek culture around them and with the absence of presence and one of the things that the Greeks were known for and we as the Western society benefit from is they are known for their intellectual scrutiny and study and so what was far more important than the glory of God being in the house was having was scrutinizing intellectually every little dot of the scripture we don't want to see the life of the scripture come alive in us no we're more interested in scrutinizing the whole thing and so this is why these Pharisees, it's not enough for them to have 613 laws. By the time Jesus comes around, they have multiple thousands of layers of bureaucracy that they've added to all the law over this time. Because over this time, a whole lot of traditions, non-biblical traditions and teachings emerge. Does any of that make sense? One of those teachings, wow, is that... Because all they do is talk all day. They're philosophers now. Okay? That's all they do. Talk, 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 talk. One of the theories that they came up with is that while miracles could still happen, and apparently all through Jewish history, you read this in the Talmud and the Mishnah, all through Jewish history, there are miracles that take place. Okay? But there are certain miracles that never took place. And these teachers of the law developed a tradition that said there are only certain types of miracles that only the Messiah must be able to do. One of them was healing people of leprosy. That was what they called a messianic miracle. Only Messiah could do that. The number one, uh, second one was casting a demon out of someone who was mute. And I'll explain that why in a moment. The third miracle was healing a birth defect, someone who was blind from birth. Okay? And the fourth one was obviously resuscitating someone from death who'd been dead for more than three days because the theory was the spirit hovered for three days and then disappeared. So if someone could do that, well, they must be Messiah. 
people can do miracles if the Holy Spirit's upon them, good on you. But there's certain miracles that only Messiah could do. This is part of the context that Jesus comes into. This is why this story highlights the fact he wasn't just a blind man. Big deal. Anyone can do that. No, he was born blind because that's one of the big four miracles that only Messiah would do. And, when you, and this is incredible because when you sort of understand that this was a culture of the time, okay, it's recorded in, in oral tradition, then it makes us understand why some miracles got complete overreactions from people. Jesus is healing people and everyone's happy about it. Fever go, people coming out and lame, people are getting healed. Wow, this teaching's awesome. Rah, rah, rah. He goes to a, a synagogue one day, there's a guy there with leprosy and he heals him. And he says, now listen, you have to, by the, according to Moses' law, go and tell the priests because the whole of Leviticus 13 and the whole of Leviticus 14 is devoted to how when people get leprosy, this is what the priests should do if they claim to be healed of it later on. Profoundly, no one in Jewish history had been healed of leprosy after the Torah was given. So leprosy was seen as one of those things that God gives. He gave it to Moses' hand. He gave it to Miriam. Then the law came. Okay? And he gave it to King Uzziah, I think, who died of leprosy. But in that whole history, from the time the Levitical law was given, no one was ever healed of leprosy. And so a tradition obviously emerged. Why do we have two whole chapters in our Torah that we're studying, that we're learning. I go to rabbi school, I go to preschool, and I learn what to do if someone gets healed of leprosy, and it never happens. <laughs> and it doesn't happen year after year after year, but they still have to teach it in Levitical school because it's in the Bible, just in case one day some guy comes in with a golden ticket and says, <laughs> I got healed. It might happen one day. Okay? Jesus now comes along and heals a guy with leprosy, and he says, Leviticus 14, mate, you need to go straight to the priests. So this guy gets healed. He's out in the, the fishing villages of Capernaum, Galilee, that type of area. He has to go all the way back of Jerusalem and he has to say, guess what, guys, Leviticus 14, I'm healed. Open your Bible, guess, work out what you have to do. That first day, they offered a sacrifice of birds or whatever and then they had to observe the man for seven days and investigate whether this was genuine. So what do you do when you investigate that miracle? All your alarm bells are going off. This is the first time this has ever happened in Jewish history. This is the messianic miracle. This guy, we have to investigate this to make sure this is genuine because we've already declared him unclean. To declare him clean again, we better be darn sure he's healed but, or we're going to get in trouble. That's why in the Gospels, it is after this miracle of leprosy, the very next one that happens, Mark and Luke, uh, uh, Matthew and Luke make this very clear. The very next miracle that happens is when Jesus is preaching in a house and the house is packed full of people, his teaching, and the guys have to layer the, the, the cripple from the, the friends, have to put their friend down in the mat, okay? And it says in that story that amongst the house full of people, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that had come all the way from Jerusalem. Okay, they weren't there in Capernaum on a fishing holiday. They had come all the way from Jerusalem because they had a leper rock up to them. And now they have to find this healer. They go all the way to Capernaum and they are now there sitting in the background listening to what he says. Is this possibly the Messiah? Is this guy legit? And it's there, of course, Jesus knows these people are there. And so Jesus, who, cheeky Jesus, hashtag cheeky Jesus, when the man is laid, laid down on his mat... He doesn't just say, oh yeah, healed. He stirs the pot and he says, oh yeah, I forgive you of your sin. Hey, you religious, you Pharisees, can you hear me say this? I forgive you of your sin. Stirs the pot. Okay? And they think in their hearts. They don't say anything out loud yet because they're just there to observe. But Jesus, it says there, they discerned that they were questioning in their heart and he said, what's easier? And from that day on, suddenly the Pharisees and Sadducees, as you read chronologically, they're all at Jesus' miracles. And they start interrogating him and they start questioning him because they're wondering, could this guy be the Messiah? These lepers, or this leper that was healed, has made us have to investigate this process. The next miracle that was declared a messianic miracle was casting out a demon out of a mute person. 
Now, Jesus cast out demons out of a number of people and no one cared or didn't make the news. Jesus healed people who were mute and it didn't make the news. But one day Jesus comes to a man and it says he cast a demon out of him who was both mute and I think blind. And the reason that that was traditionally thought of as a miracle only Messiah could do is because in the first century, people, there were exorcists. Rabbis did do exorcisms. Okay? Casting out demons wasn't a new thing Jesus invented. It was happening in the society at that time. Okay? That's why when he casts out a demon, they say, you're doing it by the devil. He says, well, how, how do your students do it? Okay? So there were other people already doing it. And part of their tradition when they cast out a demon is they, they had this formula, because, you know, hashtag formula. So they would always ask, what is your name? And when the demon spoke the name, then and only then could they cast it out. Jesus follows this pattern. Jesus, rabbi, trained in this. He follows this pattern when he goes to a man and said, what's your name? And he says, I am legion. Okay? So he does that. But this time he doesn't. Because this man was mute. And if someone's mute because of a demon, they can't tell you their name. And so this is the type of miracle that only Messiah can do. Because according to our method, we can't do it. And God forbid we change our methods, okay? Because <laughs> religion doesn't like that. You find something, you stick to it, oh, maybe only Messiah can do that. So that's why when he heals the mute, the, the man with the demon that was mute, suddenly people at that miracle, which they hadn't said before at other miracles, suddenly the crowd starts going, <gasps> could this be the Messiah? <gasps> could this be the Messiah? But good on the Pharisees who are still there keeping a close watch on Jesus and they, when they hear the crowd say, this could be the Messiah, this could be the Messiah, this could be the Messiah, it is in that story they say, no, he's demonized. He has a demon and that's why he's doing this and that day they, they made up their minds to reject Jesus. It's in that context that Jesus said, there's a sin that will not be forgiven. You've done and dusted. You reject Jesus. Those those people rejected Jesus. What, they had the chance to acknowledge him as Messiah. They had all the knowledge of the scriptures to say, this is Messiah, this is Messiah, this is Messiah. We've been saying for years, we've been waiting for Messiah. We made up the little rules about what Messiah would do even. Now he starts to do them, but we don't like him. We've made a decision. He's demonized. And it's in that context Jesus says that. That day... The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, made up their minds, put their finger in their ears, put their hand over their eyes and said, we're not going to listen to anything else. We've made up our mind. That is that. And it's from that point in time that Jesus begins to tell parables. Because he did what Isaiah did. Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I'm going to tell parables because I'm going to tell parables because those who have chosen to be blind will get even blinder and they won't see. Those who've chosen to harden their hearts will get even harder. And that's specific to that group of people, okay? He said that's why he was telling parables. And that's why Jesus, hashtag cheeky Jesus, just before he dies and he's arrested, he heals Lazarus, okay, that, the big, that, 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 that big one. The same day or in that same period of time, he heals 10 lepers. So you imagine this group of priests that have already said, he's demonized, he's not the son of God, we don't want anything to do with him, we need to kill this guy. Suddenly they're at their, they're at their temple and these ten lepers rock up. We all got healed, you have to do sacrifices for us. Oh, you know, how frustrating must that have been? But as I read that this week, I thought, I wonder if there was deliberately ten of them. Because a prophet like Moses... Moses performed 10 miracles. God said, I'm forming these plagues because Pharaoh's hardened his heart. Maybe that was a sign of the hardening of the heart that would never be changed. Anyway, that's just free. Healing of leprosy, healing of a, blue, a, a, a mute demon because they couldn't speak. And the third miracle that they said that only the Messiah would do would be to heal a birth defect. Because after all, if someone was born with a defect and God's cursed them, that's his business. Only God can heal them. Only Messiah could do it. And the fourth one was the the Lazarus, uh, the, the healing of someone who'd been dead for three days. So I say all that to say, this miracle is significant because it's one of the big three, or it's one of the big four. He's already done the leprosy thing, he's already healed the mute demon, and now he's coming, not to him, any, any ordinary blind man, but a man who was born blind. And this must have got the Pharisees really, really ticked off. Verse 2. 
And his disciples asked him, relax, we'll be fine. It'll get funny later. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that sinned that he was born blind? Isn't that incredible? This is not the Pharisees that ask this. This is Jesus' disciples. They come across a blind man and they have seen Jesus perform miracles a lot. And when they see this poor guy suffering, their question is not, Jesus, how can you solve this problem? Their question is, Jesus, who's to blame for this problem? Part of the corruption of this culture was defecting to blame any time they saw suffering or any time they saw something that was not quite right. Defecting to blame for sin. And part of that, of course, was in a sense God's doing. Because God gave them a framework of understanding in the Old Covenant that if you do good, you will get good. But if you do bad, you will get bad. Okay, That God will curse you if you disobey. That was their framework. So what these people had done in their culture, is they'd taken that broad principle of God will curse us if we do wrong. And then any time they saw something that was wrong, they read it through that lens and say, it must be God's curse. It must be sin. It must be sin. It must be sin. This is what happens when people have a broad ideology that they embrace in life and in a blanket way, they apply that broad truth to every single individual circumstance they come across. God did not say in the Old Covenant, every single illness is a result of somebody's sin. He didn't say that. He just said, if you sin, these curses will come upon you. But he didn't say it in the opposite way. So they take that broad truth and they see any suffering and they say, it must be sin to blame. Someone sinned, someone sinned, someone sinned. Was it his parents? After all, Exodus 34 says God does visit the sins on the children. Was it him who sinned in the womb? There's a funny question. Was it him who sinned? The Jews had this theory at this time that... Um, if a baby kicked his mum in the womb, then he was going to be an evil baby. He was a sinner. And if he was born with a defect, it's because he kicked his mum. I mean, this is how minute these guys were at this time. But it was a culture, as those of us know who have just read Leviticus, that was fixated on sin. And so, of course, this view had the potential to develop. What's this got to do with anything? A blame culture that begins with a broad ideology and then reads every suffering through the lens of that broad idea. And in modern culture, we have the potential, in fact many people I believe, are doing exactly the same thing. One of the concerns I have about our current culture is the increased intake, it seems to be, on the broad ideology that we historically attribute to a guy called Marx, Karl Marx. And Karl Marx had a broad theology, a broad ideology. As he looked at society, he saw people in terms of classes. And if someone was struggling, in, if there was a class of people, a group of people that was struggling, the, the, the broad idea was someone must be to blame for that suffering. So who do you blame? Well, you blame the strong. If someone is suffering... It's not about that individual person, individual circumstance. Let's look into that individual. No, no, no. There's a class of people suffering, and so the class of the strong are to blame. And once you see a problem and defect to blame immediately, then what you can legitimately do is hurt this class of people, forcibly hurt them to try to level the playing field. Because after all, we have a blame mentality. If we see people suffering, somebody else must be to blame. If people are suffering, blanket rule, blanket rule. <laughs> the rule must be the strong must be to blame. And so in, that's why in economic terms, that broad ideology eventually obviously leads to things like communism. We go, okay, here's a broad group of people struggling with poverty. We don't say how can we help those people empower themselves no the first thing we do is we say someone is to blame who's to blame it's those who are strong economically and once you blame those who are strong then you have legitimacy to punish the strong to balance 
out the pool. Okay, so that's eventually what communism does. It takes from those who, because you're to blame for this, so we can legitimately take from you to help those who are struggling. Now, under the guise of helping the struggling and, and being compassionate, but the ideology has blame behind it, that has a, and that's why I, I want to keep saying, a blanket rule that's applied to everything. We must see blame. If you see someone struggling, first thing is who's to blame, who's to blame, who's to blame. And Marx taught us that if people are suffering, the people to blame are the stronger ones in that society, so therefore we can legitimately hurt them to level the field. Kingdom culture might say, where people are struggling, we encourage the strong to help the weak. Encourage generosity. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be merciful to those. No matter what reason they're struggling for, be merciful to them. But this corrupt culture would say the strong are blamed and therefore it's legitimate to force them to forgo their whatever strength that they have. Okay, in economic terms, that would then relate to things like communism. Does that make some kind of sense? It's a defection to blame for everything. Okay? So in a cultural sense, we see this happening. This is an example of what we might see today. We might see a group in our society, very small percentage, and this is very real and very painful when it's genuine, who suffer from confusion as to their gender. They're confused about their gender, what gender identity they have. Am I a boy? Am I a girl? I don't know. And one of the reasons that they suffer, that that's painful to have that experience, one of the reasons is because they look around and everybody else is so confident. Everybody else is confident and therefore I'm suffering under this struggle even more. One thing you could do, a kingdom solution, would be to say to all those who are confident in their gender identity, all of us who are those, all of us who are confident, to say, help those who are weak. Do your best to understand, sympathize, be kind, be compassionate, be sympathetic. But a blame system wants to apply a, a, a thing of blame. The reason these people are struggling is because everyone else is to blame for being so confident. And the solution for that is to make everyone else be less confident. So let's teach a whole generation to be less confident in their gender because if everyone else is uncertain, these people who are uncertain don't feel so bad. So what does it do? It's levelling the playing field by projecting blame upon people and then essentially punishing those who are at fault. Projecting blame again in a blanket sense because that's my Marxist understanding. If I see someone who's struggling, I see that as a class of people and if there is the oppressed, there must be a class that is oppressing them. It's not just misfortune. It's not just a, a, a haphazard something that happened. There is a class of oppressors of oppressed and there is a class of oppressors. That kind of makes sense. So that's why in our, I think that broad ideology is applied and it has that blame emphasis through it. Anyway. And so that's why our voices in our society can choose a group of people that they perceive to be suffering. And they selective on who that group is according to who they can blame it on. Anyway, I'm not sure if I explained that very well. The point is, they come across this blind man and they say, someone's to blame for this, who can we blame? Who sinned? We have a corruption in our culture that is similar, but it's not in the language of sin, because we have a secular culture. So our culture is in who caused, which class caused these people to suffer. And if we can blame them, then we can shame them. And if we can blame them, we can also weaken them to level the field. Let's keep going. Verse 3, Jesus answered. Here's the solution. Yay. Jesus answered. Um, it wasn't actually that this man sinned. And it uh, wasn't that his parents sinned, actually. But that God's works might now be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. After all, night is coming when no one can do any work. So as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. It's an incredible adjustment Jesus wants these people to think. 
Don't give in to the blame game of wondering, how did this happen? How did this happen? Why did this happen? How did this happen? Why did this happen? How did this happen? That rule, as a blanket rule, doesn't need to apply to everything, and that's not necessarily a step in the solution to every problem. Jesus comes along and says, stop asking who's to blame and start wondering what could happen if I came on the scene. Start wondering what could happen if God was to intervene, how much God glory God could get for this. Stop asking who's to blame for the darkness and start realising that the light's here and it's ready to shine and where there's light, darkness is going to go. Start having that mentality of being on the front foot, not suffering from the past and wondering who's to blame and projecting the past, but actually looking over what's a valid solution. How can we shed light onto that solution right now? Because while we've got the chance, we are the light of the world and we carry him. The point is, predicting blame is not always a blanket rule necessary for problem solving, and Jesus wants them to change their grid and say, it's not his fault, it's not their fault, but you watch what God can do when he steps into the scene. Because I've got the problem solver within me. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing jen told the story just before about god healing her ears without even asking there is no mention of this guy asking for healing either he sends him to a pool in siloam and the pool of siloam is not like the pool in bethesda the pool in bethesda had a reputation for healing but siloam was not like that siloam was there it was down a hill it was this big pool that has a what's the name built in 700 bc you know and um And it was a pool that was used at that time of the year for the Feast of Tabernacles. God did not, Jesus did not send him to that pool because it was a healing pool. He sent him to that pool because it was crowded with people. Here's my take. Some people think, what's the deal with the clay? You know, I mean, Jesus speaks to blind people. He uses saliva in another story, but he never ever uses clay. This is the first time. What's the deal with that? And you can maybe read into that that he was doing a recreation I formed you in my mother's womb, Jeremiah says, and so Jesus is doing the forming of the clay, like in Genesis, and he's recreating what wasn't formed properly in the womb and doing a recreation miracle. I think that's a cool take, but here's a very more practical one. I believe that this man was healed the moment Jesus put his hands on him. But the reason he used the clay was to force his eyes shut. So even though that man was healed, he did not know he was healed until he went to the pool of Siloam. Because what's far better than performing a messianic miracle when there's only a few people watching is to get that man to walk to a pool where there's thousands of people at that time of the year and to have the sight restored to him then. That's my personal take. So I believe Jesus stirred the pot and deliberately sent this man to that pool and why didn't Jesus just say, here's a bottle of water? Wash it off. No, 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 go to that pool because it was crowded with people at that time of the year. And I believe Jesus wanted full exposure for this man's miracle. Let's start down to verse 13. The man gets healed. All good news. Verse 13 says, They brought, the Pharisees, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And what we're going to watch now is an insane interrogation on this man. Politically insane. So I want you to understand this. The Pharisees, often Bible teachers, and when we read the Bible, we see the Pharisees as religious leaders. Yes, but they were also the politicians. Okay? They were a political party. They were, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were not just religious groups because they, the Judaism, have, the religion was the government. Pharisees and Sadducees were like, like having Labour and Liberal, or the Greens. They were like the names of political parties. So the Pharisees were a political group. He brought to the Pharisees a man who had been born blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked him, How have you received your sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees... Oh, this guy has an Irish accent. There's no doubt. There is no doubt. You wait till later. It is, he is so Irish. Then some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do signs like this? And there was a division... Among them, there was a division in the caucus. Okay, And one of the things we know from chapter 7, a couple of chapters earlier, is that we get an insight into this caucus discussion. And one of the guys who was pro-Jesus is a guy called Nicodemus, 
who was secretly a follower and every now and again sticks his head up in the Pharisee meeting to say, oh, what about, what about, what about? And the interesting thing is in John chapter 7, because remember, these guys have decided, fingers in the ears, hands over the eyes, la, 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 we're not listening, okay? Jesus is evil. He is not the Messiah. The guards come into the Pharisees, into their caucus meeting and says, wow, that Jesus guy is awesome. And they say, no, he's not. The people should not follow him because none of us are following him. Do you hear that political power there? The people shouldn't follow him because none of us are following him. And Nicodemus sticks his head up and goes, oh, but guys, doesn't our law say, doesn't our policies and procedures say that we should actually listen to a guy to let him defend himself, innocent until proven guilty, basically? Doesn't it say that? And it says there that the rest of the Pharisees shut him down and, and they smeared him with a name. They named call him. They said, you're just like a Galilean, which was a derogatory term. They used a derogatory term against him and, uh, and they called, get this, they called the crowd of people who were listening to Jesus a cursed crowd. It's basically the first century way of calling the crowd that was listening to Jesus a basket of deplorables. These these people had put their fingers in their ears, they had made up their decision, and no matter how much evidence or rational conversation people like Nicodemus said, they said, we've made up our mind, and all they could resort to was name-calling, both the crowds and those who would dare say anything out of their mouth. told you I was talking about politics. They said he broke the Sabbath. I mentioned before that the law, the Torah, had 613 commands, and they had all these sub-laws in them. Because over the years, without God's presence and without anything better to do, they just added red tape. They were bureaucratic, you know, geniuses. And so when there was one law that said, don't work on the Sabbath, they took the word work and they had 39 sub-clauses of what work could be. All the made-up stuff to define work. And one of the sub-clauses they had was that work included building or using building materials. And so that's why they had to go at him for breaking the Sabbath. I mean, when you think, Jesus, spiritual gram, reads up some mud, puts it on a guy's eyes. How the heck is that breaking the law of not working on the Sabbath? Well, he made clay, you see, and clay's a building material. So he broke clause number 26 about the definition of work. So these guys were just insane. They're just wrapped up in bureaucratic nonsense and that's where they had the issue. Jesus offended their virtue signalling of how awesomely brilliant they were. Work on the Sabbath, we don't even need. That was the other law they broke. You weren't even allowed to pour water onto um, wheat or anything when you, uh, to knead it because that was breaking work laws. Okay? So their whole thing was about showing how pious they were, virtue signalling how great they were. Oh yes, I don't only obey the law, I obey every little detail and I just want everyone to know. This is what Jesus said to them when he said, you stretch out the law to the nth degree and you are killing people. Keep going. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. I think that was a question mark. He's a prophet? I don't know. He, he hasn't even seen Jesus. Okay. Some guy comes up to him, puts mud in his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He's like, what are you? you know, he, just, he just goes, he sees, they're saying, did this man here? I haven't even seen the guy yet. Oh, he's a prophet maybe? The Jews did not believe that he'd been born blind and received his sight. So they called the parents of the man who'd received the sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Hear the accusation. It's not a real question. How many know when people ask a accusation in their question they don't say let me just know this is a court of law you know we're deciding something interested to know is this your son no no it's easiest your son that you said was born blind there's this instant accusation there they already i already know what you're going to say how then does he now see his parents answered we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how we now see is we do not know mama mum nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Eh? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews who had already agreed, that if any, already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him, we don't want to be put out of the synagogue for this. Do you see there the intimidation and bullying of political tactics? Put our hands in our ears. We've made up our mind. We made up our mind during the demon thing. That's when we said this man's demon. We've made up our mind. And no matter what other evidence comes our way, la, 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 we're not changing. 
Hands over the eyes, hands over the We are not changing. This is our decision. And anyone who dares disagree with us or tries to prove, tries to give us evidence otherwise will smear you, will shut down discussion, we're not going to listen, and we'll excommunicate you socially. Because the synagogue, there was about 130 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time, okay? So they're kind of like, they're, they're social hubs, okay? Kind of like um, pubs, okay? Um, without the beer. So, but they were social hubs and people belonged to a certain synagogue and that's how they did all their trade and their social life and all that came out of that environment. So to be excommunicated from a synagogue was a really serious thing. They would suffer financially, they'd suffer socially for this. And I'm not sure how many of you know that this is happening in nations like Australia. And so we have a class of people who can make class, because that's how they see everything, in groups of classes. No one's an individual, we're all classes. We have a group of people that say, if you don't virtue signal on redefining marriage last year, we're going to cut down anyone who dares disagree with that. Call them names instantly, not listen to intelligent discussion. And for those who dare raise their heads we will say, let's take their name off that tennis centre. Let's besmear them, let's, let's break them off. Anyone who dares raise their heads, we will go to Qantas and say, stop sponsoring rugby, because there's a guy called Israel Folau who doesn't match our core belief we need to cut them off socially and cut them off economically. Okay? Not give time and attention to listen, cut down conversation, besmirch them with name-calling, and then cut them off socially. That's the intimidation and bullying that we see here okay and so then we have this bullying so we have uh and then you can name other sort of situations in how this happened there are scientists around who uh have done doing research and they they some of them are daring to say a lot of the predictions in the last 20 years of our global warming catastrophe catastrophes none of them are happening all the increased storms actually the storms are going down you know, all the, all the problems, none of those, there's actually a lot more green life on the planet now. Like the, the temperature's not doing what everyone said it was 20 years ago. Maybe we should do new research and look at this again and cut down no research for them because we already made our decision 20 years ago and blah, 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 blah. We already made our decision. We're not listening to anyone else today. So this has different, uh, in different areas, you know. You know, statistically, in... We all know, and this is a genuine suffering in our society, we have an increase in the reporting, whether it's increase in incidents, it's a whole other thing, but of violence in people's homes, what we call domestic violence. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, we decided as a society that domestic violence is only violence by a man against a woman. That's it. So when you had domestic violence days, you, you watched the TV all the time. So domestic violence, violence against women. Domestic violence... Violence against women. When there's domestic violence walks, no one's walking for men who are victims. But statistics, year after year, are showing an increase in male victims. One in every three uh, the victims of domestic violence are male. One in every three. That's pretty significant. And you've got countries in the world who take this to their governments and they get rejected for funding to try to have shelters for male victims. Because that doesn't fit the decision we made 10 years ago that defines it like this. Because we developed a narrative that said there is a group of people genuinely suffering. Instantly we blame, we besmirch a whole group of people. This particular gender is to blame. And so any suffering within that gender doesn't fit the decision that we made. So we're not going to do anything about it because they're the blame group. They're not individuals that have individual experiences they're the blame group. That makes sense? And so, there you go. So any group that's formed that says, we want to stand up for the rights of males who are suffering, including boys, don't get any funding, and actually get called names of being patriarchal and misogynistic because they dare stand up for the hated group of men. Can you see that this culture of corruption in the first century... Defecting always to blame, always has to be blame in that situations. Always have to be blame. You, t you smear a whole group and then there are outworkings like that. Anyway, do I need to lift the mood a little bit? Don't get depressed, okay? But remember the whole reason for this. When you can see part of the culture you're in, then you understand our job is to counter that culture. We don't smear whole groups of people 
nor do we elevate whole groups of people. Oh, well, if you're of that skin colour, then no matter how you behave, you're awesome because you're in that group. Okay? Or no matter how beautiful you behave and generous you behave and awesome you behave in life, because you're with that group, you're in the blame group. No, we don't see people in terms of their classes. Thank you, Karl Marx. We see people as individuals that God has created. Jesus comes to a blind man and he sees that one man and he deals with him on his individual basis. And now see what this man does under this court of law. Here's the solution. First, what's happened? The man responds. Verse 24. So the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The basic is saying, say what we want you to say. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that I'm getting Scottish. Where's that coming from? <laughs> Everything goes leprechaun. Here we go, lad. One thing I do know, that though I once was blind, now I see. This guy gave one of the best lyrics to the most popular songs in human history. He said, that's what I know. That's the facts. I don't care about all your little theories and all your little interrogations. This is what I know. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you that already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> that's where you need the Irish accent. That's awesome. Do you also? Hey, I think you're interested in him as well. Hey? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, why, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He starts then speaking back to them the principles of their own law that they knew because they're people of Moses. These are, these are all in the Psalms and the Proverbs. You can read all this stuff in the Old Testament. Neither since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He knew that tradition. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And you think you can teach us. And they excommunicated him. They didn't listen to him and say, yeah, actually, you've made a good point. No matter what they said, hands in the ears, fingers in the ears, Eyes over the eyes. We're not listening. We're not speaking. We made our mind up. Excommunicated him without mentioning any of his points and they cast him out. The blind man was committed in this trial to simply stating the simple truth and facts that he knew. He did so with a bit of cheekiness, which I like. Because the absurdity of their ideological blindness was at this stage so flippin' obvious that it was a joke. This is absolutely absurd. This is ridiculous. This is completely illogical, the way you guys are talking about this man, Jesus, in light of all the facts. You're, you made a pre-decision to hate him, a pre-decision to dismiss him, and you look like a bunch of absolute clowns. Unfortunately, they were still the ones in power. And so this man did suffer a little, but as a follower of Jesus, it ended up very well for him in the long term. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And so he then found him. This man never approached Jesus. He never asked for healing. Jesus heals him. He then suffers. It's not his fault he was healed. It's not his fault that he stumbled upon this truth. Hey, it's not my fault. I'm just presenting the facts. You asked me. Here are the facts. Not my fault. He was punished for that. And Jesus again came and approached him. And having found him, he offered him a healing that's far better than physical. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have now seen him. It's he who is speaking to you now. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? His life's over anyway. He worships a God other than the God of Moses. He's killed. He doesn't care anymore. He knows who Jesus is and he's going to worship Jesus. 
But Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who do see may become blind. I specifically think this world means that generation. There's a specific and then a broad application, but it is specific. Anyway, I can't go into that. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, then you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Chad, what's the point? We are called to be a a kingdom cultured community. We are to think and speak and behave according to heaven's culture, which is counter to the corrupt culture around us. We live in a culture that's one of the best in the world, FYI, so don't think I'm bagging on Australia. But there is corruption within forms of our culture and we are to be counter to those. Our culture is to be characterised, among other things, by love and truth, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love brings life. Love, truth and life. You hear us, there are three words, okay? Love, truth and life. From the Pharisees in this story, we learn that the, the power of a corrupt culture how strong a crop culture can be and how it can blind people to those immersed in it, to what is clear and obvious truth. People talk about the um, echo chamber of certain ideological thinking. You only grow up in one particular school, everyone has the same political beliefs, everyone sees the world the same, everyone comes from that sort of economic standpoint, so they spend money all the same, and you're in this echo chamber where as you're speaking, all you're doing is hearing your own voice come back to you, reinforcing, because everyone's speaking the same. And the Pharisees teach us the danger of what that can be like when a truth outside comes in, and you just cannot handle that, because I've already developed this frame, I've learnt how to, prov- to apply my formula to every little detail in life. I know who I am. I know what class I belong to. I know who the bad people are. I know who the good people are. I know who the right people are. I know who the wrong people are. And then Jesus comes along and is shaking that whole thing up. And so rather than listening and being humble enough to say, ooh, maybe I can learn something and I'll watch the credibility of this person. No, I am threatened and so I shut the whole damn thing down. Smear, etc., etc., etc. We learn the power of that from the Pharisees, the culture that celebrates victimhood and must always, 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 in every situation, project blame. From the Pharisees, we see the power in that and we are to look at them and learn from them and come up with a solution, which is countering that with a counterculture and being on the front foot of people who say, what if light was to shine into this situation? I don't leave depressed when I hear that on the news and that on the news and that's happening and that happening, I'm reading that blog, listening to the back, that podcast, I can be depressed with how the world's going. Or I can get on the front foot and say, but I have light within me. And while it's still day, while Jesus the light is still here, I'm called to carry a counterculture and change the world to the best of my ability and the other lights that shine with me, we will counter the culture and bring the culture of heaven into our corrupt world. From the healed man, we learn this lesson. To be aware of the corrupt tactic of intimidation and bullying, but be prepared to counter it with succinct facts and sometimes a bit of cheekiness. I don't know why you're asking me. I'm a simple man. I was blind and now I see. How can you have a problem with that? Both in a social setting and in a spiritual setting, I believe we should know socially what our convictions are, have facts on our side, so when discussions ensue, we can simply say, I can't ignore these facts. And in a spiritual lesson setting, I believe like this man, we should be able to see, say, I know this is what Jesus did for me. Can you, with a simple sentence, say, I don't know what your view of Jesus is, and I know all your arguments, and I know... Possibly you've put your finger in your ear at some point because you were legitimately hurt by a church expression or something did happen in your past. But all I can tell you is this simple fact. In my life, I once was da, but now I'm da. Can you finish that sentence? Can you say, like this man could say, said so simply, I know what Jesus has done for me. And from Jesus we learn this. 
that no matter how long a long-term problem may be from birth, and even though history has no precedent for a breakthrough of this kind, no one has ever healed a leper in the Jewish community. No one has ever cast out a demon out of a mute man. No one has ever healed a man born blind. There is no precedent for this until Jesus comes along. And we learn from Jesus that even though it might seem so unbelievable to us, Jesus can come and give us a new story that has never been told before. You may have never heard in your life of divorced couples getting happily remarried after years of divorce. And yet in the last couple of months, we've had two stories shared where God has done that miracle, unprecedented for many of us. Never heard that before, but then Jesus came. Mal just reminded me this week of when Jay and I sold our house a few years ago and we put it on the market. We got a low-ball offer. It was cash only and our agent was saying, you've got to sell, you've got to sell. I get two cash only offers a year. Don't, this, you've got to take this, Chad. And I said, no, it's way too low. In fact, I think we should re-advertise and increase the price of our property so we don't waste time with low-ballers. She said, that never happens. You don't advertise the price and then re-advertise it higher because you had a low offer come in. That does not work. It never happens. But we had a word from God. A week later, begrudgingly, we convinced her to do that. And then we had another cash offer come in. She only gets two a year. She got two for our house. offer of cash came in higher than the original price we'd advertised and she was able to bargain these two cash offer people for our house we got a a, a higher price because an unprecedented story that never happens can happen when Jesus is in the scene and I'm wondering I'm hoping today that some of you walk away with some backbone in kindness always kindness of knowing that you have courage to speak the truth in love, being aware of some of the things possibly in our culture or the things around you that are uneasy and maybe today's helped you to see how that kind of works and you know how the kingdom culture is contrary to that, not to be a whinger about how bad Australia or how much we're going down the, you know, proverbial what's the name, but to actually say, no, 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 I'm aware of that's the way our culture's going and I'm going to play the part I can to be counter-cultural to that. And I'm wondering if some of you are like the blind man. You need to know how to speak of what Jesus has done for you well. And I wonder if you, like Jesus, need to know that when you see impossible situations that have never been dealt with before, that there is the possibility Jesus can do do anything. And he can even do it when you don't ask. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.